started. Okay, so I'm just going to put everyone on mute and uh, got any questions, just put it in the uh, in the chat. Okay. Right. Okay, this is um, this is the Shir Le'ilu Nishmosa Mefraim Shmuel Ben Avramaria Cohen and Chaya Tova Bas Eliezer Mendel Cohen on the book of Yechezkel. We are holding at this present time in chapter 1, verse 11. Last week, we completed verse 10, which was a long, complicated uh, piece. Um, now I'm going to move on to verse 11. Uh, by contrast, verse 11, is not, there is a lot to say, but I'm very limited in what I can say. So we'll just say what we can on verse 11, and then we'll move on to verse 12, which will be the centerpiece of the ship. Um, again, verse uh, 11, chapter 1, verse 11. Uh, Yechezkel continues to describe what he's seeing. Ufnehem and their faces, v'chanfehem prudos milamala, their wings were extended upwards, le'ishtayim chovros, Ishushtaim Machasos as Kvio Sel Kvio Seheno. And uh, yeah, the wings were extended upwards. Each one had two wings joined to each other and two covering their bodies. Now, there's a difficulty in trying to punctuate this uh, verse. Um, the word, the first word of the verse is Upnehem. And uh, the the cancellation, the tam, the note that appears above the word upnehem, the first word in the pasuk, gives a clue, as Rashi points out, is that this, this word should be taken separately from the rest of the verse, upnehem. In other words, the words upnehem describe what's gone before. So he's basically saying, Yecheskel upnehem, indicating, I've discussed their faces with you. That, that's what their faces look like, like what I've just described to you in the previous verse. Um, and then he goes on to discuss something else, the Chan Fehem. Now, what about their wings? Um, so, um, their wings. What were their wings like? So we know they each had four wings. Each of these Chayas had four wings. They were extended above their faces and covered them. How did this work? Each had two wings that were joined together to each face. Um, and these were the wings that were designed to service God, to sing songs to God, to sing Shira to God. Uh, they were joined. And they also had wings, uh, another set of wings that were stretched out towards their sides so that uh, each higher, uh, so to speak, um, I don't know how best to describe it. Each each chaya was covered by the the face of each chaya was covered by the wings of the chaya next to it, so that going round, so to speak, in a circle, uh, the wings of each chaya covered partially its own body and partially the body of the chaya next to it. So you had a a situation where looking round and, so to speak, in a circle, you had wings up in the air and wings covering faces, so that the faces were unseen, and which is very difficult to understand because Yechezkel's just described their faces. 
Um, and also one set of wings were covering the uh, body or the faces of the Chaya next to it. Now, it's very difficult to understand exactly what he means here, and there's a lot to be said here. Unfortunately, this is one of the verses which we can't go into um, as a group. <laughs> and uh, as a result, we're just going to have to leave it at that, that uh, you're just going to have to picture it as you can. That uh, they each had two sets of wings, so they all had, they each had four wings um, that were extended above their faces and covered their faces. Uh, they also had wings that extended across to the bodies of the other chayas, so that uh, all the chayas, so to speak, were connected to themselves and also connected to the other chayas as well, creating, a, a, so to speak, a circle, a, a closed circle, uh, where really all you could see were wings covering bodies, wings covering faces, with no gaps. How that worked, um, you'll just have to imagine it. I can't go into it. Um, halakhically, it's problematic to discuss this possible. The rest is possible. Any more insights into this possible. So we'll have to move on to verse 12. Now, verse 12, there's a lot to say. So verse 12, each one of these chayas, each one of these angels will go towards the direction of his face. Wherever the, the will to go, they would go. They did not turn as they walked. So exactly what's going on in this posuk, we'll have to unravel it piece by piece. We'll start off with the first, first words in the verse, and then we'll take it from there. I mean, let me just again mute everybody. Uh, yeah. Okay. So the, the passage starts off the each the ish el eva ponov yelechu. Well, we've described this before. Since the chayas, these chayas, these angels have multiple faces facing in all four directions. Something we've been discussing for the last three weeks. They didn't need to turn their bodies in order to change direction. The very fact that they had four faces facing in each direction, each one, one, one facing in each direction meant if they wanted to walk north, they could walk north. If they wanted to walk south, they could walk south. They were automatically facing in the direction that they were required to walk in. Um, now, what's difficult about these words is that Yechezkel uh, has already told us this in verse 9. Remember, this is verse 12. But in verse 9, he told us, Lo yisabu ish el of exactly the same language. They didn't turn, and when they walked, each one would go towards the direction of his face. So here it seems to be in verse 12, a, a, a repeat of what he told us in verse 9. Um, so the Avarabanel gives us an insight why Yecheskel is repeating the, this information, that they didn't turn when they walked, and they would just go in the direction that that particular face faced. So he says, Omnom, Kafi Darki, according to the way I've explained it till now, that these angels were spiritual beings according to their nature, 
They were permanently on standby to perform any task that was given to them by God. And to do what they were commanded to do in our world, to travel to our world, to do what they had to do. Some to do things which are good and some to do things which we would consider to be bad. And like we, uh, what, like what is hinted to in the nature of the faces, what the faces look like. The Novi is telling you here, the Yechazkel is telling you here that each one, each face was turned in a particular direction. That each chaya performed a task appropriate to their spiritual makeup, but under the direct guidance from God only. So we'll, we'll explain it a little bit deeper in a second. Let's just finish what the Avaravanel says. Verse 9, he says, might have given the impression when it said in verse 9 that they could go in any direction they wanted. Uh, he says that verse 9 might have given the impression that these chayas, these angels, could walk in any direction without turning according to their own free will. Lochein, therefore, Boha Posik Hazer, this, this verse is coming to tell you, if they wanted, if, if you, you would think that they had free will and they could go backwards and forwards in any direction they wanted to, that's not true. The only time that they could move in any direction was on direct instructions from God to perform a particular task relevant to their own makeup. Now, if you remember what their makeup were, was, um, the Chaya, with the human face, um, interacted with prophets and men on an intellectual prophetic basis, uh, bringing instructions or information from God that was supposed to be transferred to man. The Chaya, the angel with the lion's face, brought strict justice, punishment to those deserving of it here on earth. The Chaya with the face of an ox, or what looked like the face of an ox, brought material benefit to those deserving of it. And the Chaya with the eagle face provided protection for the righteous in dangerous situations and delivered people who were in trouble. So those were the, those were the four primary tasks of these angels. And that's represented by the look they had. So now the Abad Benel continues. The idea that they could only go, they went in the direction that they were facing. The Posuk's coming to tell you, the next line in the Posuk is... Um, that the the next words in the posseg, that there had to be a ruach, had to be an instruction, had to be God's, that uh, 
It's own, they only moved when God's spirit was upon them. Only on his instruction did they move. And uh, the only time they could move was to perform a specific task, again, a task that was willed for them to perform in relate, direct relation to their makeup, to what they were designed, the type of mission that they were de de designed and created to perform. And um, they didn't change direction. They had no free will to change a, 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 a word, a letter, from what God commanded them to do. That's what it means. They didn't divert in their way. They went in exactly the right direction. And we indicate this, we remind ourselves of this in the morning davening, where we say, Kulam Giborim, they were all Giborim, all these angels were Giborim, Kulam Osim Be'emar Ubeyira Ratzon Konehem, that all they did was with awe and fear the will of their maker. In other words, they had, they got, well, I'm not going to say they got no free will, but they got extremely limited free will. That they they could only perform tasks for which they were instructed. And what the Abarbanel is doing here, he's making an exceptionally important philosophical point. That man's advantage over the angelic creations is the gift of free will. We can choose to perform God's will or decline to do so. Um, and the basis of, or the, the, the end game of our choices is either reward or punishment. We can choose to do the right thing or we can choose to do the wrong thing. It's left to us. The angels don't have that uh, ability. They have very limited free will in that they cannot decline a mission from God. We can decline a mission from God. God wants us to take a little of on succus. God wants us to eat matzah on Pesach. We can decline to do so. The angels can't decline to do anything God tells them to do. They're duty-bound, not duty-bound, but they're created in a way that it's impossible for them to refuse a mission from God. That's what it means. They don't, there's no divergence when they travel. They, they don't diverge from the path from which they were commanded. They do have which we'll deal with much later in the book, the angels do have some limited discretion in the way they choose to carry out the task that God commanded them to do. But nevertheless, they don't have the ability to turn down a command. They have to complete what they're commanded to do. They have no free will in that respect. They do, as I mentioned, they do have a limited amount of free will in the way they accomplish the task. <clears throat> That's borne out by Toysus in, in Chagiga on Daf Gimel or Daf Dalad on the base down at the bottom. If you want to have a look at that Toysus there, it's dealing with the story of Jesus and his, uh, and his girlfriend, Miriam, and his mother, who was also called Miriam. So that, 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 that Gemara there deals with this idea that angels have got some type of limited free will. But on the whole, angels are completely different from us in that respect, that... Uh, human beings have got the ability to rise above the angels in the sense that they can perform tasks 
for which the there is a voice in their head telling them not to do so. Whereas the angels have got no voice in their head telling them not to do it, something that God wants. They require to do so. In that sense, they're like squirrels. They act on instinct. Um, it, squirrels don't get rewarded and uh, squirrels don't get punished. Uh, angels don't get rewarded and angels don't get punished. It's only the human beings do that do because we have the ability to choose what we want to do. And on that basis, we're rewarded or punished. Um, now, on this subject, people make a very serious mistake. We read in Davening every morning, uh, a posset from Koheles. Uh, and we say it every morning, and people just, you know, race past it. And they say it every morning, probably without checking what it means. The language of the posset is, it's a posset from Koheles, chapter 3, verse 19. The posset says, Umosa odomina bahema oyin, kiakol hover. There's a temptation to translate this verse in a pessimistic tone. I don't know how Art Scroll translated. I've not looked at the Koran translation, but there are plenty of Sidurim that I've seen that translate this verse. What is the superior superiority of man over the animal kingdom? Nothing, because all is vanity. Umosa Adamina Bahama. What is the advantage? What has man an advantage over the animals? Oh, nothing. Because everything is vanity. That is incorrect. That is not what Shlomo Melech is saying. The correct reading of the verse is optimistic, not pessimistic. And it's the challenge. It's the challenge that Shlomo Melech is throwing out to humankind, not just to Jews, to humankind. The translation, the correct translation of that verse is Umosa Odom in what is the superiority of man over the animal kingdom? Oyin. Oyin means the ability to say no. The human, the human race uh, have the ability, unlike the animal kingdom, and certainly unlike the angelic world, the um, supernatural world, the spiritual world of the angels, we've got the ability to say no. Ki hakol hover, because without exercising that free will, to say no, then all is vanity. That's when all is vanity. Because if, you, if a human being uh, does not exercise the gift of free will, then he's no greater than an animal. And uh, the ability to say no is what sets human beings apart from the animal kingdom and what sets human beings apart from the angelic world. Um, so this is the way the, the uh, Abarbanel understands it, what's going on here, is this is just a, a reiteration or a explanation of what went on in verse 9, uh, that the, these creatures, they don't have any say in what they do. They're created for specific purposes. Uh, they're created with certain skills, certain abilities, certain... Um, uh, relevance to certain situations and when the call is needed when a particular mission is required on earth God sends the appropriate angel and when that appropriate angel goes below they don't diverge they don't uh, um, move away from the mission that they have been commanded to do so uh, that is the essence of what Yechezkel is telling you. But there's a deeper understanding here, uh, which I'm going to go into now, 
uh, uh, just a, a reflection, um, the ability of these chayas, uh, as we discussed, which Yecheskel has reiterated here, is that they face in all four directions at once. Each of the chayas have got four faces, and um, they face in all four directions at once. Now, when you're facing in all four directions at once, which is something that we don't have, it affords them the ability to change direction without the need for any movement. Now, this is a deeply spiritual message. It's a deeply spiritual idea that goes back to the original creation of the world and specifically to the creation of man and woman. I'm going to discuss with you a Ramban at the beginning of the Torah, uh, and uh, you'll quickly see how relevant it is to um, this possible because it goes to the very heart of the difference between human beings and angels, which is something this posuk is coming to tell you something about. In Bereshis, in the first chapter of Bereshis, in verse 18, the Torah tells us, Vayom HaShem Elohim, Loto, Vayom HaShem Elohim, Loto, Hayos Odom Levado, Esalo Ezekinegdo. God said, Loto, Hayos Odom Levado. It's not good that man be alone. Now, some people translate this verse incorrectly. Um, some people, I've seen this bad translation, quite a few translations in the Chumash. They translate it, it's not good for man to be alone. That is completely incorrect. The correct translation is it's not good that man be alone. And there's a huge difference in that translation. The translation it's not good for man to be alone, indicates that when man is alone, it's bad for him. It's not good for man to be alone. In other words, man, if he's alone, it's not good for him. The correct translation is, it's not good that man be alone. In other words, it's not good for the world that man be alone. Not that it's not good for him, it's not good for the creation that man be alone. That's why that translation is absolutely vital. Anyway, you can dwell on that um, at your leisure. So the Apostle says, God said, it's not good that man be alone. I will create for him, I will make for him an Ezer Kinegdo, a helper against him. Says the Ramban, Nachmanides, it can't be true that man was created alone without the ability to reproduce. After all, we see clearly from the first chapter that all other organic creations were made in male and female pairs with the ability to procreate. Even the vegetation and trees were self-replicating. So it is appropriate to conclude that this man formed from the dirt of the earth was a dual fused being with two fully formed bodies fused together, back to back, known in Talmudic language as Dupartsufim. Dupartsufim means two figurines, two figures. This, is, this idea is not an idea that uh, the Ramban made up himself. It's based on the Gemara in Brothos, on Dafsam Chalof, and more, more uh, famously, a Gemara in Erevin, on Daf Yud Ches. So, this being, the original being, the original man, was a dupartsufim, a dual being. 
this being, says the Ramban, was part or half male and part or half female. The original man, therefore, was created with both male and female reproductive organs and could, as such, procreate internally. And each uh, uh, was attached, each attached being was joined back to back with each face looking in the opposite direction to the other. Later on, God decided that the time was right to split the creature into two distinct beings, one totally male and one totally female, so that they would be able to interact with each other um, because interaction in the physical realm is vital. Therefore, says the Ramban, we should read the verse as follows. When the Torah says, Lo tov hayosa odom levado, it is not good that man be alone, meaning two individuals fused into one body back to back is not good because the purpose of creation will not be fulfilled that way. So, so God says, I will make him a helper. I will separate the two beings against him. In other words, opposite each other. So that we'll be able to see each other and interact with each other. That's the way the Ramban understands that positive. That there was a human being, the first human being was a dual being. Man, woman, joined together, back to back. And facing in opposite directions. And then God decided... That isn't the way forward. In the physical realm, the two beings need to be separated so that they can interact with each other. So then the Torah continues. In the second chapter of Barashas, it tells you what God did next. God cast a very deep sleep. A Tardema is like uh, extremely deep comatose sleep. Al Ha'odom, on this being. Vayishon, and the being slept. God took one of the sides. Uh, Tzalosov is not a, 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 a rib, as is depicted in the Christian uh, translation of the Torah, or in Christian um, art. Tzela is not a rib. Tzela is a side. If you've been following the parishes of the last few weeks, um, the Torah has been describing the construction of the Mishka. And the construction of the Miskon is described with sides, using the language of tzela, language of sides. So God, so to speak, God took one of our, this original being sides. In other words, he split it into two sides. And he closed the flesh in its place. So that instead of having one being, uh, one being with two, one dual being, uh, stuck to each other back to back, you now had two beings. By even Hashem Elohimasatzela, God built up the second side, Ashelokot, which he took, Leisha, by Yiviel Adam, and he brought the two of them together. Um, so various questions uh, arise over this story. Um, why did God put the man to sleep? So there's various reasons why he put him to sleep. Um, there's a general principle, this is brought down by the Redact, there's a general principle that God doesn't perform miracles unless there's a specific reason to do so. Just putting the man to sleep is not a miracle, it's a natural occurrence that happens to human beings every day. That's the way God operates in the world. 
That's the opinion of the Red Axe. So Forno, another commentator, said that God put the man to sleep so he shouldn't be frightened during the procedure. Remember, the man had just been formed and not had yet had any life skills. A sudden extraction of part of his body uh, might have scared him, and God wants to avoid that. Alternatively, the Abarbanel suggests that man was put to sleep so that when he awoke, he'd have a nice surprise. Oh, who's that? Um, a nice surprise. There's a lady waiting for him, or there's a man waiting for him. Rashi suggests a more pragmatic approach, which is what we're going to be dealing with. When someone, uh, Rashi brings this from the Gemara in Sanhedrin, that when someone orders a steak in a restaurant, he really doesn't want to see the animal slaughtered in front of him, butchered and cut up and then cooked. He wants to see the waiter just bring him a nice juicy steak and put it on the plate in front of him. If a person had to witness the process through which his food arrived on his plate, he'd probably lose his appetite very quickly. Rashi therefore suggests, based again, based on the Gemara and Sanhedrin, that if the man would have witnessed the surgical procedure on his body, or the being would have witnessed the surgical procedure on, on the body, um, and then he was presented with a constructed female, or the female was presented with the reconstructed male, it would have had the opposite effect than the one that God desired. He probably would have been repulsed by what he saw rather than be attracted to the resultant female. Um, and this Rashi is obviously based on the concept that we've been discussing uh, of the Ramban, of a dual being, a male and female being fused together. And again, it's described in the Gemara as Dupart Sufim, a two-sided being. Now, the splitting of this dual creature Adam and Chava, we call them Adam and Chava, into two discrete individuals achieved what God was aiming for. God was, uh, so to speak, um, the task at hand was to tr transform an essentially all spiritual being, which only had God as a companion, into two beings balanced between the physical and the spiritual pulls. Um, man, of course, is a social creature. It's not in his makeup without, uh, to be without his chevra, with his friends, with his family. Despite the fact that many people have good relationships with their pets, it can never replace the fellowship, love, intellectual stimulation, and common interests that human beings have with one another within their own social groups. Therefore, on pragmatic grounds, it was not good that man be alone. It was not good that this being just be a dupart suffix, just be a two-part being with an, the only companion it had would be God, either for his physical or his spiritual preservation. And this is the basic difference between uh, the relationship between uh, animal mates and human mates. Animal relationships are based purely on instinct and programmed uh, inside of them is the need to feed themselves and the need to procreate. You would never see a sick horse uh, attended to and nursed back to health by a mare with which he once mated. With the words, Eza Kinegdo, God is describing what he wanted to achieve, a helper against him. The Torah demonstrates that the man-woman relationship is an all-encompassing, profound, physical and spiritual connection. And the original, purely spiritual, Dupart Sufim, the original spiritual dual being that only had the ability, had no social, 
had no social or physical interaction. The only, th the only being that it was able to communicate with was with God. So it was essentially a spiritual being. So this original purely spiritual dual being with back-to-back -back connection facing in opposite directions, whose only companion was God, was not suited to the physical realm. But once these beings were separated and they could interact with each other socially, physically, sexually, and make individual choices, which is the essence of what being a human being is, they were then the appropriate beings to be the forebears of the human race. That was now designed to fuse the physical and the spiritual because the human being, uh, humans have a connection to each other, which is a physical requirement. And if human beings also have a connection to God, which is a, a spiritual requirement. So what God did was essentially take a two-sided being facing in opposite directions, a purely spiritual being that ha only had the ability to communicate and interact on a spiritual level with its creator. And he split the two beings so that they could interact with each other and become physical mates, have physical interaction, have sexual interaction, have social interaction, have material interaction. On the, on, on the one hand, they gained a physical presence. On the other hand, they retained a spiritual connection to God as well on the basis that they had a neshama, the basis that they had a soul. So here you have the creation of a human being that was an ori originally a purely spiritual two-sided being, which is now one-sided being, but partially physical and partially spiritual. Now, I want you to contrast this with the angels that Yechezkel is describing here. Yechezkel describes these angels as having four faces. Each one went towards the direction of his own face. These chayas weren't one parts of one face. They weren't even two parts of it. They weren't even two Face. They didn't even have two, they weren't two bodies fused together. They were dalad parts of him. They were four faces fused together. They were distinct, discrete entities that needed no assistance from each other. They were completely independent of each other. They didn't require any interaction with each other. They could travel, they could move, they could go anywhere they wanted in any direction without the help of anybody or anything. They had different tasks. They had no common tasks with each other. Um, and with all the tools they were given, they, they were given all the tools they needed to complete any mission they had. That was it part of their creation. They faced, that's what it means, they faced in all four directions. They were in need of no interaction with any other being. They, had, they were created with the ability to do certain missions, to do certain tasks. They were created in a way that they could travel in any direction. They required no assistance, no interaction, no social interaction, no physical interaction, no sexual interaction. They were purely, purely physical being, uh, spiritual beings. Furthermore, he tells you, 
They remain fixed in their ability to act, as the, Mal, as the Abar Benel explained. They could only operate by direct instruction from, from God. They only moved when God instructed them to do so. God is their only companion, so to speak. They only take orders from God. They only interact with God. Then he says, Lo yisabu They did not turn as they walked. They had no physical need, like the man and the woman, to interact with each other. Their objectives were always fixed. Their manner was always the same. The way they did things was consistent, the same, all the time. Nothing changed. Nothing about them changed. They were fixed in their abilities. They were fixed in their missions. They were fixed in their directions. They were fixed in the sense that they listened only to the world, the spiritual word of God, without the need for any interaction with any other being. When Yechezkel, what Yechezkel describes here is the difference between the realm in heaven, a totally spiritual environment, without the need for a physical element at all, and the realm he, Yechezkel, lives in, a place where the creatures require, by their physical nature, the ability to interact with each other physically and spiritually, and the need to make decisions for themselves. It's a world, the comparative is what he's seeing is a world of Dalad Paratsufim, of four directions already clearly, discreetly defined, modes of travel, modes of operation, no free will, a, a world where the creatures can only do certain things, the things that they can do, they do perfectly, and they have no need of any help from anybody else. The world Yechezkel lives in, by comparison, which is what he's seeing, he's seeing the comparative, is a world of one parts of parts of Echad, where we can't physically see what's behind us. The angels in heaven, they can see in all four directions. They can see what's in front of them, what's behind them, what's to the side of them. We are, after the creation, after God split up the two parts of him, we are beings that can't physically see what's behind us. And we can't know what's in front of us. We can't know the future or what elements are going to interrupt our lives coming from the right or the left. We can't see any of that. These things are all closed to us in the physical world. The Chayas, the angels that Yechezkel seeing, has no such restrictions. They see all directions at once. They see the past, they see the future, they see the present. They see what's coming, what's been, what's going to be. And all the variables from the side, from the left and from the right, that are going to affect what, ha what happened and what will happen in the future. We, on the other hand, can only face in one direction, looking to the future. And without knowing what it's going to be. Um, we don't know what's going to come from the side. And very often we don't look behind to learn from the past. So... This is one of the comparatives here that uh, Yechezkel is witnessing here. The, the contrast between the beings in heaven, the Dalad Partsufim, and himself, 
being part of the human race, which is only facing in one direction uh, with the limited ability to go in one direction. And uh, although that might seem a disadvantage, it's a huge advantage because, as I explained before, the great advantage, we have that inherent ability from creation, the ability to say no. The ability to say no can raise us above the level of the angels. That's our free will. And by the same token, it can lower us right down below the level of angels when we make the wrong decisions. So this is what, this is a analysis, so to speak, or a reflection on what Yecheskel is seeing here in this uh, idea of the of the Chayos walking in the same direction all the time with discrete jobs, discrete missions, discrete skills that never change over time. Thousands and thousands of years of doing the same thing and under the same command with no ability to change direction, either in terms of the actual direction, physical direction, or in terms of direction, in terms of free will. So that is a very interesting reflection on the difference between the Chayas and the human race. So that is, that is verse 12. Now we'll, we'll start on verse 13. Uh, sorry, yeah, we'll start on verse 13. Uh, we won't um, get through verse 13, but we'll start on verse 13. And please, God, will complete it next week. Now, just before we do that, I just want to, before I forget, um, next week, there'll be a shear, I presume, uh, Larry. There'll be a shear next week, and then we'll, we'll miss one week, yes? Correct. Okay. Um, let me see if there's any questions here. Uh, Chabad. What's Chabad? There is a happening for the children of men. Chabad, what? 319. Kohelet. 319. For there is a happening for the children of men. There is a happening for the breasts. Breasts and they have one happening like the death of this one is the death of that one. And all have one spirit. And the superiority of man over beast is nothing for all his vanity. Whose translation is that? Chabad? Yes. Yeah, we'll write into them and tell them they got it wrong. Um, is the ability to say no different from the ability to say yes? Who, who asked that question? I did. David. David Barrett. Yep. Yeah, the ability to say no is completely different from the ability to say yes. Do you not remember the Dara Hashem? You tell me what the difference between saying no is and the, the, the ability to say no and the ability to say yes. I shall admit defeat at this moment in time. Okay, well, think about it. Uh, I haven't got time to um, uh, I haven't got time to dwell on it because it's a long piece in the Derech Hashem, which uh, we did not so long ago. Um, if you remind me at the beginning of next week's year, I'll 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 go into the the difference between the ability for a human being to say no and the ability for a human being to say yes. Uh, it's a, there's a huge difference. Okay, I just want to begin. Um, chapter uh, verse uh, 13 as i said it's uh, also quite a complicated little verse um 
and there's a lot to say, but we'll start now. So he says, now he's, he, he goes back to describe uh, the appearance of the Chayas themselves. Remember, he's described them pretty well so far. He's described the legs, he's described the, the faces, he's described the wings, he's described the feet. Um, now he's going to describe something else. And regarding the likeness, the form of these living beings, of these chayas, uh, their appearance was like ash, was like gachale ash, like fiery coals. Boros kamare halapidim, burning like the appearance of torches or flames. He misaleches ben hachayas. It was going, this fire was going among the, the chayas, the nogaloesh, and there was a brightness to the fire, like a halo to the fire. Uminoesh yotze barok, and from the fire came out barok, lightning. Now there's a lot to say here, so we'll just uh, we'll start off. So he starts off by saying udimus hachayos, um, the appearance or the likeness or the form of the chayos, mar'ehen, it appeared, kegachaleesh, like coals of fire, and boros, burning, kamarealapidim, that were burning like the appearance of a torch or a flame. Now, what's he describing here? He doesn't tell you which part of, which part of the chayos is describing here. Is it, I mean, it can't be the, the wings, he's already told us about the wings. It can't be the faces, he's already told us about the faces. He can't be the legs, he's already told us about the legs. Can't be the feet, he's already told us about the feet. Can't be the hands, he's already told us that the hands not aren't re- really, the angels don't really have hands, really it's the hands of God, so to speak, anthropomorphically, trying to grasp, grab onto the sinners and bring them in, um, even though they're sinners, that uh, the hands are actually behind the appearance of the chayas. So what's he trying to describe here? Uh, what's on fire? What looks like uh, fiery coals that burnt like a, a flame or a torch? Um, so the Radak and many others say what he's describing here, I'll tell you what the words of the Radak, he's describing the eyes, which obviously is very frightening, that the eyes of these creatures were like fire. Uh, they gave the appearance of being like fire, so much fire, like they burned, like a, like they, they were like, it wasn't just like a fire, like a two-dimensional fire, but they burned like a torch or a flame, that they, um, they uh, emitted um, a flame that came out of their eyes, like in three dimensions. Um, so he says, He says, the only thing left of the body that... Uh, he hasn't described as the eyes. So he says it's the eyes that uh, are the ones, are the things that are burning with fire. Now the Rambam, uh, as you would expect, says it's, it's all, it's all made up. It's not, it doesn't really mean what it says. Um, so the Rambam, in his explanation of the word demus, this word that appears in this posuk, the first word of this posuk is demus. Now it's very difficult to really translate this word demus. Um, but the Rambam uh, in the Moran um, of the guide to the pe- to, for people that know everything already, um, in the first section, 
he describes this word demus. He says it's it's uh, derived from the from the verb dama to be like something, and the term don't denotes comparison to some abstract relationship, not a physical relationship, but an abstract relationship. And he gives you examples. He says, David HaMelech describes himself, Domisi likras midbar hoyisi kachos harobos. I am like a pelican in the desert, says the Rambam. The David HaMelech is not comparing himself to a pelican in the sense that he like. If he looks in the mirror, he can see a pelican. He's not describing himself as a pelican in relation to the fact that he's got wings and feathers, but rather he is using the language demus. I am domisi. I am like in reference to sadness, like a pelican that's lost in the desert. I'm like a pelican lost in the desert. In other words, the pelican's sad. So I'm using the word pelican to describe my sadness. It doesn't mean he looks like a pelican. Similarly, he says, Dimino Ka'arie, his likeness is that of a lion. That's also from Tehillim, chapter 17. The resemblance indicated in these sentences, in these psukim, in these verses, do not refer to the figure and the shape, but to an abstract idea. Like his Dimino, it could be even being Dimino, I've never even thought of that word being an English word, Dimino. Um, he, he had the likeness of a lion. His demeanor was like uh, the likeness of a lion. So it's interesting, demeanor, demeanor. Okay. Um, the, he says the resemblance indicated in these verses, in these psukim, do not refer to the figure and shape, but to an abstract idea in the same manner as which we'll see later in verse 26, where it describes God's throne as demus, he say, the likeness of a throne. The comparison there is to, to put over the message in relation to God, God, so to speak, position in terms of greatness and glory, like a kise, like a throne. It doesn't mean there literally was a throne there. It's there to describe greatness. It's there to describe glory. Um, and not, says the Rambam, as many believe with regard to God's throne, that it has a physical square form or any type of breadth or length to its legs. And he says, finally, this explanation also applies to the phrase in our verse, verse 13, chapter 1, verse 13. The lightness of the chayos was the lightness of burning coals. So, there is only an appearance, says the Rambam, of fire here. The, the, what, what is, like David Amalek describes himself as a pelican. He's trying to convey the idea of sadness. Um, David Amalek writes, His appearance was like a lion. He's trying to describe a person's appearance as being very powerful, physically very strong. And later on, we're going to see the muskise, the likeness of a throne. Not that it was a throne, but to express the glory of God. So what is he trying to express here, says the Rambam? What's Yechezkel telling us? That the likeness of the chayas had the appearance of fire. What is the allegory here? The fire, the flame in the eyes of the chayas 
is an allegory. The Rambam doesn't tell you what the allegory is. The Malbim tells you what the allegory is. So the Malbim says, Udumus Achayas, Kvav Pirish Chazal, Shirot Saloma, Al Pu'ulos Achayas, Shehem Zumonim Lasos Otto. Their appearance relates directly to the job they are currently engaged in. Ki Hanibdolim Mikol Chomer, Lo Yipol Bahem Dumus Raklafi Pu'uloseha. That's what differentiates these creatures from other types of created creatures. Their appearance actually reflects the job, so to speak, the mood that they're in, in terms of the jobs that they've been given. Raw. Their eyes appeared to be burning like fiery coals. Lisrov as because the next mission that they were going on was to burn down the base of Migdosh and the palace of the king in Yerushalayim. And it looked like torches. Because what Yechezkel understands from what he sees is the emergence from the Chayas of a mood of battle, a mood of war a mood of destruction that is coming to the land of Israel. And just to clarify, says the Malbim, their actual essence was not that they were like an actual wall of fire or they actually protruded fire. The idea here is that the notion of fire is representative of oncoming doom for the land of Israel. So, in cons consistent with the language of the, Ram of the Rambam, what we're seeing here, what Yechezkel is seeing here, is not literally fire. He, it, it appears in his intellect, in his imagination, actually, because I don't think we've mentioned this before, but uh, um, the, the home of prophecy, where prophecy is introduced into a human being, it's introduced into his imagination, interestingly. Um, where a person's got the ability to play around in the, in the area of the brain that deals with imagination, the human being's got the ability to play around with the images and infer ideas from the images he's seeing. Just like when we're in a dream, the subconscious pre pre presents us with Im images and our imagination takes over and tries to project some type of logic, some type of rationale into what we're seeing in our subconscious. So too, in prophecy, the message is transferred, not as you might think, into an intellectual part of the brain, but rather into the imaginary area of the brain, so that the prophet can deal with it and examine it and rationalize it and deal with it from an imaginary perspective and see different, different um, approaches. If it was just part of an intellectual experience, part of the message would be lost because the imagination allows you to see other parts to the prophecy, something that the intellectual, the purely rational part of the brain doesn't allow. In any event, this is what Yechez says the Malbim in the first part of this verse when the chayas are described as having burning eyes, 
the fire is not real. The gachale esh, the fiery coals are not real. The torches, the appearance of torches is not real. It's just allegory. He sees it in his imagination, but he understands that what it represents is the fire of the base of Mikdosh. The base of Mikdosh on fire, Yerushalayim on fire, Yerushalayim being destroyed. The idea of battle, the idea of war, the idea of fire is the idea of oncoming destruction. And uh, the Malbim wants to clarify that as this is the first part of the verse. But the first part of the verse is dealing primarily with destruction. Also, the verse says that this image was a consistent theme in Yechezkel's eye. He, the Posik says, he mishaleches bein hachayos. That this was consistent to all the chayos. That, uh, as the Masudas Dovah says, hamara hahi hoysam aleches bein kol hachayos. All, all the chayas here, even the chayas whose jobs normally was peaceful, even the chayas whose jobs were normally refuah, nevertheless, they are all primed here for one specific task. And the specific task they were all primed for, Rotsalom of Akulon Hoya Maria Hahi, they were all primed for uh, a mission that dealt in doom, battle, war, fire, and destruction. And um, this idea of fire being punishment, fire indicating doom, fire indicating battle, fire indicating destruction, this is a common theme. It's a common theme in Tanakh, and it is God, so to speak, um, I don't know if this is the correct way to describe it, but fire is, so to speak, God's favorite method of describing punishment, of describing oncoming doom, oncoming battle, oncoming war, oncoming destruction. The language of fire is the allegory to punishment. Now, well, this is something that we will um, discuss in Mitzvah next week uh, as we go further into this puzzle. We've only touched on the first part of the posse. If you read the posse carefully, it's split into two parts. The posse says, Boros That's the part we've just looked at. That so Yechezkel is seeing through their eyes, out of their eyes, the appearance of fire. Fire indicating oncoming torches and uh, flames that will envelop Yerushalayim and envelop the Jewish people and envelop the base of Migdosh. But there's a second part of this verse that we haven't dealt with yet. The Nogala Eish, there was a halo to this fire. And from the fire came forth lightning. Now, this is a completely different idea uh, entirely, which we'll have to deal with next week as well. But the first thing to, that we're going to discuss next week, which again will be the last year um, before Pesach, is this idea of this idea of fire, this idea, so to speak, that God, when God wants to give a prophet uh, an indication that uh, bad tidings are on the way, that uh, evil is on the way, that battle is on the way, that doom is on the way, that destruction's on the way, that punishment and exile are on the way. Almost always, almost always throughout Tanakh, 
the allegory will be to fire. And the question is why? Um, which is, again, this is exactly what we will be dealing with next week. And then we will complete this pasuk with the first part of the pasuk is entirely pessimistic, dealing with destruction, exile, and the, and the burning of the base of Mikdash. The second part of the pasuk is a more optimistic view of the future, that uh, the destruction won't be forever. The destruction is a temporary measure. Um, okay, if anybody's got any questions, now's the time to ask. Thanks, Harry. Yeah, Harry. Is that it? Nobody. No one's got a question. How is it? Complete, somebody please tell me, how is it when I give a Derek Hashem, when I give a Derek Hashem shit, everyone had a million questions all the way through, in the middle, at the beginning, at the end. I give a shit on Yecheskel, which is probably the most, this is probably the most complicated chapter in the whole of Tanakh. And everyone's sitting there and they got, they got no questions. Are, are you like bemused or are you like, in awe of the of what's going on here, or what is it? I mean, I'd like you to taught, know. You taught us Derek Hashem, so it opened our eyes to what's going on. Oh, I see. So we don't really need to go on, right? Um, <laughs> yes, we're okay. just getting started, Harry. We have we have to get. Some... Yeah, you got to warm up. You got to warm up. Okay, I appreciate. Wait, wait, Harry. A quick question about the um, the chayot. If I heard you correctly, I understood what you're saying. Is that all angels are for? Faced creatures. No, these these chayas, just these chayas. They're unique, yeah. Yeah, 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 unique. But yeah. Isaiah also saw angels that look like this. Yes. Yes. Okay. He just and he just did, he just didn't bother to to uh, write about it because he's seen it so many times. And um, so when they're stuck together like this, does this indicate the similar mission? I can't I can't discuss it. Okay. And um, in one of the um, talking about the four um, likenesses, you spoke about the four archangels, you know, Michael and uh, where is it? Michael, Uriel, Rufua, right? So so this is uh, kind of what we are picturing, the four angels sort of stuck together with fire coming out of their eyes in all directions. And uh, this is the imagery. That's the imagery Yecheskel is getting, yes. Okay. Uh, and the imagery is in his imagination being transformed into a message, right. which is the message I'm giving over to you. This is this is what's this is what he's supposed to be taking out of the imagery. Like uh, the, it's quite clear from the Rambam and from various other sources, Kabbalistic sources, that he didn't see any lions, right? He didn't see any lions. He the lions. The picture of the lion came into his imagination. His job is to take the picture of the lion, rationalize it, and work out what it means. Right. Like there isn't really a lion there. You, 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 you with me? Yeah. Um, and there isn't really a fire there. The picture of the fire coming out of their eyes is to indicate to him a message. And the message here, the first part of this verse, is the message is destruction. The message is exile. The message is the burning of the base of Migdosh. I think also it's a pretty strong message because he has the four major angels together united in carrying out this mission. So obviously this is what God needs or wants to do at this point in time. Yes, correct. And, and, and also, which uh, I thought somebody would point out, is 
there's no one to appeal to here. There's no one to appeal to here. You, normally there's Raphael, right? Raphael deals with Rafua. And you have Uriel that can deal with helping people get back on the, on the right derech. There seems to be no angel here that's going to help out. They're all, they're all got fire in their eyes. Like there's no, there's no like bright side to this. There's no like, okay, Gabriel's going to come and destroy you with Shalayim, but Raphael's on his coattails and he's going to, you know, sort it out afterwards and everything's going to be okay. There's none of that here. Like all, like the posse clearly tells you, um, the posse clearly tells you, uh, like it was consistent, consistent, like they all had the fire in their eyes. Like there was no um, inconsistency here. There was no dual, triple or quadruple mission. There was only one mission at this particular point in time. And the mission was a destructive mission. So... And we're beyond tshuva here. It's, it would appear so. It would appear so. It, it doesn't, not beyond tshuva, but beyond the ability to change the punishment. Tshuva is always possible. Right. But uh, the, as we all know, there's tshuva and there's the God can say no. You can do tshuva and God can say no. Uh, I, I accept you to Shuva, but there's a price, there's, there has to be a price to pay for this particular avail. Mm -hmm. And uh, we know in Davni, we daven for people that they should get better, right? You can have a thousand people Davni and uh, the person dies. So God says no. You know, God has uh, got his own load. Uh, your thoughts are my, not my thoughts, and your direction is not my direction. If you want to have it out with me, so have it out with me. But uh, at the end of the day, there's only one winner. Uh, the decision maker is God. And when he makes a decision, we can influence the decision, but we can't make the decision. So when it comes to Teshuvah, there's no limit. Anyone can do, do, do Teshuvah at any time. But there is a, a, a side, so to speak, to God where... Under certain circumstances, he will demand that certain certain actions require a response, even though there is teshuva. And um, what can I tell you? That's just the way it is. That's just the way he sets up the world. So, so this, so this chariot is menacing. At the moment, it's menacing. At the moment, it appears to be menacing. In a minute, in the second part of this puzzle. It will change its approach. It will change its appearance. Mm -hmm. It will appear menacing for the near future. The next image, which is part of this verse, which will appear in, in Yecheskel's imagination in a second, we haven't got to that second part of this verse yet, is a complete and utter reversal of the primary image. The primary image is of desolation and destruction. The next image that he sees within the context of the same verse, within the context of could be a millisecond, is a vision of redemption. So I will describe it next week. I mean, it's very interesting how within the framework of one posuk, you see utter, you see a vision that it seems to be a, a consistent, like a, the verse reads very easily as one verse, one consistent idea. 
But uh, the reality is the verse is in two parts. And the first part of the verse is describing destruction, exile, punishment, and fire. And the second part of the verse is describing the absolute opposite. It's describing redemption and, um, and uh, Mashiach. So we, we will have to wait, I'm afraid. You'll have to wait till next week to see the unraveling of this verse. But the first thing we have to do um, is to understand this idea of fire. What, 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 it, what is it about fire that is so, um, so much a part of God's interaction with the human race in terms of punishment? What is it about fire? So we'll see. We'll see, uh, please God, next week. We've gone right over time, so people still here listening. Um, so we'll deal with the fire first, and then in Hashem, we'll go into the second part of the verse and try and um, make sense of the more optimistic view. Um, who wrote this? Do the four archangels correspond to the four heavenly directions? Yes. And also the four images. Three of animals and one of man. Yes, we dealt with that. We we dealt with that in great detail last week. Um, Harry, can we make any comparison here with um, the vision of Abraham about how the how his family was going to be had to no. go down to Egypt? No, no, and no. This is, the, this, this is uh, obviously with no disrespect. This this is Yechezkel. This is he's one of the primary prophets here. His, his, his visions are on a completely different level to Avram Avinu. If you look at the, the, the Torah actually tells you when God spoke to Moshe Rabbeinu, he says, listen, I'm speaking to you uh, in a particular way. I'm interacting with you in a particular way, in a way that I never interacted with uh, your forefathers, Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. They never had the benefit of this type of prophecy. The prophecy that uh, comes from Moshe Rabbeinu, which is the inherited prof- type of prophecy of the prophets like Yechezkel is on a completely different level to that of Avramovina. Uh, you got it's not it, not 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 comparable. Um, and if you if you notice that the Akeda, um, even at the point of Avram's complete and utter surrender to God, who was it that spoke to to Avramovina? Who spoke to Avramovina at the Akeda? An angel, not God. An, an angel, an angel. An angel. He wasn't. Um, Avram Avinu was uh, the founder of monotheism, but in terms of prophecy, he's not. Um, he's not in that uh, on that level. I guess, what I, I guess what I'm getting at is that uh, that that uh, that that in order for the Jews to be um, redeemed out of Egypt, they had to go down to Egypt and really suffer. Like where, 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 does it say, where does it say they had to go down to Egypt in the story with Abraham? Um, when he has the dream, but your, 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 your children are going to... Where does it say they're going to? They're go- where does it say he's going to? They're going to be strangers in a strange land. Yeah, to mention Egypt. No, I, you know, I'm just... I just you're, infer- you're inferring it because you know the end of the story. Right. But there's no certainty from the language there in the Torah that it was Egypt. Right. That it had to be Egypt. What was if the brothers wouldn't have sold Yosef? That was a free will decision to sell Yosef. We just talked about free will decisions. What if the brothers would have said, oh, Joey, our best, our favorite brother who has all the dreams. We can't wait. Tell us another dream, Joey. And they don't sell him. 
what happens then? Then Joe, Joey doesn't go down to Egypt. Then they don't go down to Egypt. And then Paro doesn't have a dream. And then there's no uh, famine. And then the Jews never end up in Egypt. What happens then? Well, it would have been um, Yaakov down to Lavan instead. All, all I'm saying is, it's quite clear from the conversation that Avram had with God in the Brisbane Absorium that God held back a lot of information, a lot of information. And nothing, it appears, was decided at that point about where the exile was going to be. He could have, God could have told him, listen, your children are going to be slaves in Egypt for 400 years. He didn't tell him that. He says they're going to be strangers in a strange land. If he would have told him they're going to be strangers in Egypt for 400 years, that would have interfered with the free will decisions of future generations. But there was anyway, a dread. Abraham a, had a dread. It was a dread as a result of this vision. Of course he did. Of course he did. Harry, you could, you could also argue that Abraham was a stranger in a strange land himself. Correct. In any event, these are philosophical issues that uh, uh, have been dealt with by our, our philosophers. Uh, they don't really concern us in terms of Yechezkel, but to answer your question, the, the vision of Yechezkel is very powerful here. He's, he's, Abraham Avinu didn't have a vision like this. No, nowhere, nothing, any, even, nothing even approaching this type of vision. Nothing, nowhere near. So very few prophets did. The, the only three that had equivalent prophecies apart from Moshe Rabbeinu were Eliyahu Anovi and Yeshayahu, Isaiah, and here Yechezka. Uh, no one else saw what, saw what they saw. Okay, uh, you know, it's uh, 16 minutes past six, and um, that's, uh, that's all you lot. That's all you lot. We'll be. We'll finish off. We'll finish off this verse. It's very I, actually. I, I, obviously, you're obviously going to come next week anyway because you love the shear. But um, I just want to tell you the end of this verse is very, very comforting. This particular verse. Uh, uh, we're talking about verse 13. It's a very, very comforting verse, and uh, we'll deal with it next week. Please God. Listen, I want to thank everybody for taking part. Uh, everyone should have a great week. For those that are going to join me tomorrow morning for the book of Yonah, um, we're going to find out what, what's going on with Yonah tomorrow morning. Very strange individual. And um, that's it. That's all I can say. And for those that are going to join me on Wednesday for Nadorim and tomorrow night for Bob Mitzit, Bob Akama, um, good luck. Enjoy. Cold tub. Everyone have a great week. Oh, and Pesachim Pesach, Pesach tonight, Harvey. Don't forget Pesachim tonight. I'll be there. Please go. Call to call to everybody. Thank, Thank you.